Hi everyone, welcome to Morning Matcha. This morning's guest is Darlene May Lee, the Executive Director of the Earth Law Center. Hi Darlene. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So wonderful to be here with you today. Nice to be here. So tell us what exactly the Earth Law Center is all about and what work you guys do. Okay, so we are a legal advocacy group and we're working on creating new laws that actually give nature rights. So what we're saying is that, you know, if corporations have rights and humans have rights, but nature doesn't, then nature inevitably suffers. So, mm-hmm. you know, with all the you know bad news that we're reading about these days, that maybe this is one of the ways that we can actually more sustainably protect nature. How long has the Earth Law Center been around? Oh, we were incorporated in 2009. Wow. Uh, but more originally with like a focus on advocacy and education. So we've kind of pivoted last year to actually get involved more directly in creating new laws. So we launched 11 legal initiatives last year. So we're, and it's kind of opportunistic, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we found one river in Mexico city. That's the last free flowing river of an original 45 rivers. Oh my God. And Mexico city had just passed a rights of nature ordinance. So we're like, Oh, this might be low hanging fruit. Why don't we go find somebody who's working on this? Yeah. Working together with that. Right. So we found a bunch of people, we started working with them and then somebody said, Oh, we need another call. These guys may want to work with you too. So it ended up being three river initiatives mm. in Mexico city In one in Mexico city, one in Puebla, which is a really polluted, the Atoyac. And then one in, um, Durango, which is being threatened by a dam project, oh uh, San Pedro Mezcatal. What are the other, you yeah, said so 11. Then we yeah. have, uh, the well and dolphin sanctuary in Uruguay. We worked with sea change and the Katha freedom party in South Africa to help them with a new maritime spatial bill. Um, we're speaking, we're a part of the forum for the Patagonian sea now to get the Patagonian shelf listed as a uh, marine protected area. Um, we also started, uh, working with some groups in the great lakes, a biodiversity ordinance in San Francisco. We created a framework for oceans and a framework for rivers. And we just actually started our first initiative in Nigeria, which is, uh, for the Ethiop river in the Delta state. And what, what do these initiatives do for the rivers? Like, what are you saying? So what we're saying is that, for example, for the Ethiop River, that it's heavily polluted and uh, we want to actually be able to give the river uh, standing in the courts so that bad actors can be taken to account. Mm-hmm. So right now, what ha- uh, the way that environmental laws are written is that you and I have to demonstrate personal injury for us to have standing in the courts to then sue a bad actor. Mm. But a lot of times it's rural communities, indigenous nations, uh, local communities. They don't necessarily have the resources to do that. And sometimes they can't even prove standing. Yeah. So that means that the bad actions continue. So pollution, diversion, hydraulics, whatever. And all of those things actually damage the river ecosystem. So what we're saying is, well, wouldn't it be better since the river doesn't have a voice, you know, it can't go to court. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wouldn't it be better if we actually created a model where, anybody who's concerned about that river could actually then have standing in the court because the river has standing. Mm -hmm. So they're just representing the river to then actually, you know, sue for, to be free from pollution, to have the right to flow, those kinds of things. It seems so like, it seems like common sense that we would have (laughs) laws like that. So why don't we already? And why is it considered cutting edge? Oh, uh, that's a good question. So I think that most environmental law has really been about humans. So it's been about our right to a nice environment, but it's also been about acceptable levels for us. So when they say like, 
you know, they get grade a river or they give a river a grade and say it's safe to be swimmable. It's safe for us to be swimmable, but it doesn't mean that it's actually good for anything that lives in the, that water. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 I guess the paradigm shift is really to make it not so human centric and make it more nature centric so Mm -hmm. that we're really looking and saying, what's the best thing for the river? And whatever is the best thing for the river will ultimately also be the best thing for us because, you know, we kind of need nature more than nature needs us. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's why it's considered a little bit, you know, slightly more cutting edge than, than it looks like t- to begin with. Mm-hmm. Because some people don't believe that. It's interesting The uh, it, there seems to be an age correlation, honestly, like the older the person I'm speaking to, sometimes the harder it is for them to get it. Yeah. Like even some of my friends I've said, and they're just like, why would rivers need rights? Like that just makes no sense. But, you know, if I lecture to a group of like second year undergraduates mm-hmm. in architecture who have no, at Laurentian University in Canada, they have no exposure to environmental law, right? They're not legal students. They get it right away. And all of their questions are about the application of it. Mm-hmm. So it it seems to be much more, I think, one of my new volunteers actually said that it's kind of like the new civil rights movement. So I think that the younger people are, the more they're getting that, look, this is my future you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know? So if we don't solve this now, we're really not going to have a future. So yeah, we're going to get know, wiped out. Yeah. So let's, <laughs> you know, focus, get focused and get into action. Mm-hmm. I live a certain lifestyle. I'm sure same with you, you're vegan and not that just being vegan is enough, but, um, I don't really spend much time in places like Seven <laughs> Eleven. And last night we were here in Austin and we went there and I was just like, oh my gosh, just like shocked at the, just how the world functions. Sometimes yeah. I think you are in your little bubble and yeah. let's say you are um, more conscious or whatever. You just forget how the rest of the world treats the environment and all the and again, like um, it goes in right now with the trash situation Yeah, that China, they, I'm glad that China did that. That China saying, no, we can't, yeah. you can't export your trash here anymore. So yeah. we have to live with the consequences yeah. and starting to see it build up is, um, yeah, is good. But what's going to like, unless people like you are here to make changes, what, What's going to happen? Well, I, you know, I think it's kind of like using the civil rights movement template again. You know, it's not just Rosa Parks that did it by herself. It's yeah. not just counter sit-ins. It's not just the churches. It's not just Martin Luther King, but really all of those things were required along with the civil rights amendment, right? So it's kind of like every action that is, I guess, every action that is sourced from connecting to nature and being understanding that we're in a position of being grateful for the gifts that we are given. I think anything that's sourced out of that helps get us to tipping point. So mm-hmm. I think the good thing is that not everyone has to be convinced before this is, happens. We yeah. just need to get to tipping point. That's good. Because when I was reading um, the Wikipedia page on Earth Law Center, I was like, seriously, it's just saying these people believe X. And I'm, yeah. And it was interesting to me because I'm like, no, this should be fact. Like nature yeah. needs rights. Yeah. We need to update that. Thank you for. <laughs> <laughs> well, just in general, like on the internet, I just wanted to be like, no, we need to. Yeah. It needs and, to and be. to do something tangibly about it. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, a lot of times what we're also seeing is that 
um, let's say, at the in the well and dolphin sanctuary. So that's a group that's specifically working on protecting whales and dolphins. So normally they don't really have anything to do with other environmental groups or anti-plastic or anti-trash because everybody's got their own specific issue. But if you talk about earth law, it starts to be able to be like a platform to connect everyone, right? Because it, it serves everyone's goals. So I think that that also makes the movement stronger and it makes the whole push for a healthier environment more powerful because then groups that are working on this already, like there are so many groups working on this that I don't even know about. Mm -hmm. Like the other, uh, just last week, somebody emailed from the Balkans wow. and they were like, listen, I'm working on rights of nature. I found you guys. Would you like to partner with us? Oh. And I was like, yes, we would love to partner with yeah. you. And so now we're starting something in the Balkans and it's specifically about pesticides because they're killing off all the birds. And so I was like, wow, who knew? Like, I literally did not know that that was happening. I did not know that there was anybody working on this in the Balkans. But I think that that's true for everywhere we live. Like there are, like I just went to a 350 uh, Brooklyn meeting in New York and there's apparently a Williams pipeline that they're um, opposing. Mm. I had no idea. Oh my and God. And I lived there. You yeah. Know what I, mean? I know. I think there's one um, going in on the east side in LA that they're opposing as well. That's going to affect the water and everything. Yeah. 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 But unless, I mean, that's, I guess it's word of mouth. It's people coming together and spreading the word. Well, I think it's just paying attention. Mm -hmm. You know how like when you buy something, then you start to see it everywhere because yeah. it's basically on your mind, right? Mm -hmm. So I think if you have the environment on your mind, you start to see like, oh, here's a place for me to take action or here's something for me to do. Like mm -hmm. I'm still constantly, like I just started composting a couple months ago and I have a tiny flat with no outdoor access, right? So yeah. I was like, okay, how, I've got to be able to yeah. compost. So there's apparently an, uh, well, so I've been using a Bokashi method, which is anaerobic. So you have to ultimately bury the the pickled, basically fermented stuff into soil for it to compost. Mm -hmm. So I was like, hmm, soil. I don't think they would appreciate if I sneaked across yeah. the street and dug a hole. So I have to think <laughs> of something. So a friend in the Bronx has a backyard. So she's the one who's taking my compost. But, you know, you can always figure mm -hmm. out a way, I guess. It, it, no external circumstance is will limit you from doing that. You may mm -hmm. have to be a little creative. You may have to like you know, take a couple extra steps. But I think that if all of us took a, a few more steps doing that, think of collectively how, how powerful that would be. Mm -hmm. So what's the Environmental Protection Agency's role in all this? And what are they working on? And Yeah, so we get asked a lot because uh, the NRDC is also big actors. Um, I, we love what they do. So the EPA, the NRDC, the National Resource Defense Council, they are actually busy enforcing the existing uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, regulations. So I would say the EPA does create new laws, but it creates new laws in the current paradigm, which is still people-centric, yeah. right? So it's good that they're doing that and we totally support that. We just feel like, look, there's been decades of that and yes, it has cleaned up some things and yes, it it is, you know, at least people aren't being poisoned by their water as much as they used to be. But if you look at the state of environment, <laughs> it's kind of not quite there yet. So yeah. why don't we continue to evolve this? So I guess we consider that rights of nature and earth law is like the next evolution mm -hmm. of both legal, uh, like ethical considerations, as well as the environment protection part. Is it something that you can consult with them and try and change that or... <laughs> At some point, yeah. yes. Maybe in the future. <laughs> Phase two. <laughs> but other organizations just 
maybe people just haven't thought of that, right? They haven't. Yeah. Well, I, you know, like I, when I spoke to Client Earth, which is a big UK organization that essentially works on enforcing existing regulations. And they were saying, look, you know, we are swamped just trying to enforce what we've got right now. Yeah. So we love what you're doing, but we literally have no bandwidth to take on anything else, but we're delighted that you're doing that. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, okay, so we're kind of working together in a way we're almost working uh, in sort of cohort, right? Because theoretically, if I got a new law passed in the EU, they would then have to defend it, Mm -hmm. right? Because we're not a huge organization with hundreds of lawyers on staff. So we would kind of, you know, then work with them to say, okay, well, how do we enforce this? So I think they all, they are all part of the the effort. Yeah. So what are some, how long does it take to get some, an initiative passed? This is something I, I still don't really know. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's so different in each place. So when we started working on the Magdalena river in Mexico city, that was probably June last year. And then by December, they actually passed legislation incorporating our language for rights of the rivers in Mexico City. That's pretty quick. Which is great. Yeah. But there's a last step, which is it has to be published in an official gazette for it to officially become law. Hmm. At that point, we can petition for it to be applied for the Magdalena. Okay, so I'm still waiting for when this is going to be published because I was like, publishing, shouldn't that be fast? Yeah. Like the passing of it, I can imagine takes a long time, but... No, it's taking forever. So it's like been months and we're like, <laughs> so we are assured because we're working with local partners, of course. They're like, no, it's going to pass. There's just some debate. So, you know, you just, just hang, hang That's out. That's where they get you. Yeah. <laughs> so you just never know. You yeah. know what I mean? And then sometimes we have really active partners. So they know people, they know like lawyers that are going to um, be able to, you know, let's say submit the petition. They know the judges that we need to get in front of. So then sometimes it goes quickly. I mean, we're hoping for the Magdalena River to get recognized and to actually get rights of river by the end of, before the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, who knows? So, uh, but so is that different than in the US? I mean, I'm assuming in the US it just takes a lot more time. Well, we're going to find out because we are, we're going to start a petition for the Charles River in Massachusetts. Um, just because it's a one state river, so it's a little easier jurisdictionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to find out pretty soon. You know, you never know with these things. Like I, I remember reading interviews for uh, leaders in the civil rights movement. And a lot of them said that they actually were shocked that it happened in their lifetime because they were just like, look, we don't really think this is going to change. But this is I know this is the right thing to do. And I know this is what I need to do. So I'm just going to do it anyway. That's amazing. Do you mean? So I feel yeah. like that's what it always feels like before tipping point is that, look, I don't know. Cause like, I'll have some students ask me, like, do you really think this is going to happen soon enough? Cause we're not really like, we don't have a lot of time here. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, well, you have to get up every morning and choose to be hopeful. Right. Because that's what there is. I, I don't see any, I don't see a better way to do this than to wake up and say, look, I believe this can happen and it might not happen in my lifetime, but I believe that it can. And so I've got to do what I can to, mm. to make that happen. So is that you know, what you do in the mornings? Some mornings. Yeah. Because sometimes you just read about all this stuff, particularly with the current administration. And you're just like, Oh my God, the list of things that he's overturned in such a short time, like so much work has been undone and we're not really at a place on the planet where I think this can be absorbed. 
Mm-hmm. Like these are all things that we're never going to get back if they we lose them, <sighs> you know? So I just feel like, yeah, <sighs> just take a deep breath and then just, you know, focus. So I, we started a one minute talk series, which is all of our volunteers doing a one minute video about what inspires them about earth law. And so, right. It's for other people to access or is it internal? No, no, no. It's for everybody. So we post it on our website, YouTube and social media and it's, they're adorable, right? Because everybody's got a very specific point of view. Sometimes they're talking about where they live or where they grew up. But I I said to them, look, you know, we, we have to also counter this whole prevailing negativity. Like everything's about bad news, which is true. And I, I understand the urgency to like, I have to scare you and wake you up with all this bad news. Mm -hmm. But I think people just get really cynical and resigned if you have too much bad news. Like I'm just going to watch Queer Eye for the straight guy because I just can't deal (laughs) with any of this. But so I, I was like, you know, let's try to be a positive, inspiring voice. Let's try to put a solution in front of people like, hey, here's something you can do about it right now. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to be a public policy master's degree holder. You don't even have to be a vegan. You can just take this one action and you will be contributing and you will now be part of the movement, right? What is that though? I think it can be a lot of things. I mean, just signing up for a newsletter, like pick any group that's working on this and just support them by finding out what they do. Money always helps give $5, you know, it's the price of a coffee, Mm $10, like Every, most people, a lot of people that we know can, can afford that. Like I, I did a, I did my own fundraising and I, the criteria I used was these people can go out for a hundred dollar meal and not blink an eye. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, if somebody's struggling, I'm not going to ask them for that. Mm -hmm. And a lot, everybody gave, and a lot of people gave more because they were like, oh, that's a great idea. We haven't given to our charity this year. So you asked the right time Mm -hmm. or, oh, I don't really understand what you guys do, but here's a hundred (laughs) dollars anyway. (laughs) Which is wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. So it gets overwhelming and people just kind of freeze and don't know. I think it's just about picking something that you can engage with. Like, I feel like a lot of the urban farming movement is part and parcel of that, right? It's about reconnecting people to our food sources, um, about seeing things grow, about being outside. And most, I mean, I, for one, am not usually productive outside. Like outside just means laying somewhere Mm -hmm. or reading or, you know what I mean? So I feel like even those kinds of things are part of this whole movement, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's about reconnecting with nature and kind of understanding how your carrot gets to you Mm -hmm. and where does it come from and how do we make unproductive spaces productive? You know, so there's so many things that people can do that are not necessarily I'm petitioning as a lawyer for rights of nature, but it's all part of the same movement. And Mm -hmm. I think it adds momentum. So, and I do see a lot more of it, you know, like the composting. And I think I read somewhere like 25% of millennials in uh, the U S and Western Europe are vegan or plant-based. That's, that's a lot, right? A lot. Yeah. That's amazing. Apparently Berlin has the highest percentage of vegans, therefore the highest number of vegan restaurants per capita. I'm going there. I'm so (laughs) excited. Right. I can't wait. I've heard that. Yeah. I wanted to share something with you. I recently went to this, um, I listened to like slam poetry. Oh yeah. And there's this one slam poet that I love and his name is in Q, which stands for in question. And I, I go see him often and, but he travels the world. Um, and he's in New York sometimes if you ever want to go see him, but he did 
the other day he was sharing this one poem that really hit home with me that I thought you would love. And I'm sure some of our listeners would love. Um, I don't know the poem, but basically what he said was we, we take possession of so many things. So we say my house, my car, my kids, my husband, my this. But when it comes to the environment, we say the mountain, the lakes, the river. And it, we, so we disassociate ourselves with it. Yeah. But if we decided to say it differently and use different yes. language and say my mountains, my lakes, my rivers, my oceans, yeah. it would be so different. We would yeah. treat the world differently. Yeah. And just that shift for me, even someone who like thinks about these things was so powerful. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> yeah, I just wonder if you have anything to say about that. Braiding Sweetgrass is a brilliant book. I highly recommend it. So it's written by what is a, it? Braiding Sweetgrass, oh, okay. uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. And so she's a Native uh, American, but her grandfather was adopted into white families, right? Mm. So they were trying to break the tradition. So she's like relearning her tribal language. She's actually a PhD botanist, but she talks about language because in, in her Native American language, all animate things have a specific way of saying it. So when you say that's an apple, you actually say that is being an apple. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you say cup, then you say that's a cup. But 70% of the uh, language are verbs and 30% are nouns. Where in English, 70% are nouns and 30% are verbs. Wow. And so what she was saying is that we actually objectify everything. So everything becomes a thing mm -hmm. when really they're subjects, mm -hmm. right? So they're actually water choosing to be a bay or water choosing to be a river. And so she said, if you think about them as living things, then you actually also become exactly like you said, you actually develop a different relationship with them and they actually have a different level of respect. You know, that I think we're, you know, those of us who don't eat meat anymore, the idea of like killing something in order to eat it when I don't need to. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's really what we're doing on a, on sort of across nature. Mm -hmm. Right. So even like I started watching a documentary about these two guys that were exploring eating bugs and I couldn't watch anymore <laughs> because they were like grilling bugs alive. And I was just like that. I just, no, I can't do it. Yeah. No, <laughs> I think that's just wrong. <laughs> you know, this, yes, they're bugs and I, I don't particularly want to be covered with them, but I also don't think that we need to grill them alive. Yeah. It's like the, um, those lollipops in Mexico that you get that have, oh, what is in there? Like crickets and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, it's actually a good protein source. Yeah. I, I know because they make cricket bars. So I volunteer at a food pantry and the guy who's managing it, the shift comes up and goes, what's this? And I go, <laughs> it says, it says it's cricket flour. And they go, no, really? And I'll go, no, it's really crickets. <gasps> they roast them and then they, it's a brown powder and then you use it in baking. And they're like, we can't get this away. Otherwise I'm going to get phone calls. Could you use it? And I was like, well, I'm vegan, so I can't eat it, but I will make cookies and I'll bring them back. And Aww. he goes, oh, okay. I would eat a cookie with cricket flour. And I was like, okay, good. It's all about how you frame it or like make it look. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. So that's at a food pantry near you. Yeah. Uh, I can walk there. It's a, uh, it's a uh, New York common pantry mm -hmm. there. They do amazing work. We cert they, the, place serves like 300, 350 families a day. Wow. Um, and so of course I, you know, I have a, my past career was in market research. So I get all geeky. So I'm like, so how many people do you serve a year? So how many people are in New York? And the guy was like, uh, you know, I'm just managing the Saturday shift. Like I, 
could you just go do something? And so I looked it up. 1.2 million New Yorkers live in food insecure households. Oh my gosh. So, I, but I, you know, I think this is also related to this, right? Because we, we see our circles as us mm-hmm. and then everybody else is other. Like mm-hmm. I was asking the Lyft driver, like I've noticed a lot of homeless people. Is it because it's nicer weather here? Because I think Austin's only a million people population. So it should have less homeless people than New York, but I'm seeing them on every corner. Really? Yeah. I have had the opposite experience oh. here. I was just, but from LA because LA just has such so a big, many. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. just like, well, there's like no, ho-. and <laughs> Portland as well. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, because it's not good weather. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Come- but I think it's the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Is that I think we're traditionally, I've looked at them like, oh my God, like they're a little bit scary, first of all, because I don't know if they're mentally imbalanced yeah. or whatever. And then, you know, if, if they're on the subway car, everybody moves away from them, right? Because oh. they smell, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but ultimately you're like, but they're us, right? They're, we are connected. Like yeah. we can only be as well as that person is. Exactly. So how well can we be? Like how much can we be thriving if that person's like in that state? Mm-hmm. And so it's just, I think it's just really like, it's, it's, it is a paradigm shift, right? Cause it's shifting how we see ourselves and what we see our responsibilities as being. Mm-hmm. And if I wake up every day saying, okay, how can I be of service? That's different from how can I get ahead? Mm-hmm. How can I get more? How can I like hoard more stuff? Because you know, I might run out. Yeah. The scarcity mindset. Yeah, Cause you know, my, my parents were immigrants. So we always have like had a refugee mentality, mm-hmm. right? It's sort of like, if it's free, take a couple extra mm-hmm. just in case, <laughs> like, you know, going to the mall, my mom would give my dad a packet of cookies and my dad would be like, why do we need a pack of cookies? She's like, because we're driving to the mall. He goes, because we're going to lunch at the mall. And she's like, just in case, like we may break down in the 10 minutes it takes us to get to the so, mall. Take the cookies. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, Persian, yeah, just take the so cookies. Same thing. My grandma's purse had every possible thing that you could imagine in there. Cause you never know. Yeah. And you know, I, but I think that that's that scarcity mentality, right? It's survival. And it's actually, there's not much room for joy and for connection and for gratitude because you're just so scared all the time. And not much room to think about the environment, right? No, no. So I think that's probably also a generational thing that's changing. Yeah, or I, I sometimes hope that we can go back to like a lot of the indigenous nation worldviews. Like she has this one thing, which I think, um, I can't remember which one, maybe it's like from the, uh, it's from either her indigenous nations, but it's basically like a poem of gratitude where you thank everything. You thank like the stars mm-hmm. and the water and the air and the birds and the fishes. And it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, it's so sad that it takes such a long time to thank everybody. Who right? said that? The, the author. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. And so you kind of think, oh, that is interesting because mm-hmm. we don't, they start every, oh, the Iroquois Confederacy. So the Haudenosaunee or what? I don't know what the exact name is, but that's how they start all meetings and all congregations. Mm -hmm. So that's why they said that they're so good at negotiating these consensus agreements because you start with the gratitude things Mm -hmm. and each stanza ends with, we are of all of one mind. So once you go through all that, you can kind of get everybody in the space to go, oh yeah, we are really grateful for that. Oh yeah, that's true. I'm really happy that Mm -hmm. I can, you know, so you kind of end up in the same place. So I think it's maybe a way of, seeing that 
all of like maybe we're evolving it like okay so personally i hope that we're evolving enough as a species that we can actually see we have everything we need Mm -hmm. right and that we all the fears and insecurities and trying to get ahead they're just illusions that really don't matter Mm -hmm. and so if we can stand at a place of i have enough and how can I be of service? Then that gives us a whole different range of actions, mm-hmm. right? Then I don't need to cut off that little lady getting onto the subway. Yeah. I don't need to go get, and this happens with my husband and I, we don't need to go get a table while we're standing in line to order our food. Because like, <laughs> I, do that. It, I always am like, I, I need to make sure I have a table. And my husband's like, no, you stand in line. One will show up for us once we ordered. <laughs> but it's like it's a hard habit to let go of yeah yeah so okay i want to go back to the current administration yes and what we can do in the meantime to prevent them for to overturn all yeah i mean are they still going on like a binge yes. to overturn things. Okay. Yes. Um, so I think there's a lot of different organizations. So 350 um, has uh, chapters everywhere and they actually work on specific local initiatives. They're completely tailored to the local. They're all volunteer based and they actually petition state governments. Mm-hmm. So like the group that's in Brooklyn actually has buses that go to Albany and go meet with the legislators and go, don't sign this bill. Here's what happens if you're going to sign this bill. The local community suffers, the river suffers, you poison the ecosystem. It's going to be expensive to repair and we don't know how to really fully repair it. Mm -hmm. So that's what you're signing away and we don't need it, you know, like that. So I think there's a lot of that kind of frontlines action. You know, we have people showing up like the woman from the Balkans saying, listen, I have an initiative. I just need your help to do this. You can Mm -hmm. start an initiative. Mm -hmm. You can volunteer at any number of organizations around you. There's so many, even like if you work in conservation, like somebody was saying last night at dinner that they, they started, they did a lot of beach cleanup and then they just got so discouraged because of how quickly the trash filled up the beach again. Yeah. And so they're like, I need to do something more systematic. This cleaning of the beach thing is not really working for me every week. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you, you know, I think doing what you, what you are naturally have an affinity towards and are engaged with, as long as you're doing something, as long as you're taking some action, because no, no results are possible without action. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think it, it almost doesn't matter what you do as long as you're doing something. Mm -hmm. And I love what you said about just staying hopeful. Yeah. And it doesn't need to happen in my lifetime, but it needs to happen. Yes. And I really love that because I'm pregnant and I am getting so nervous about the state of the world and leaving a child in the current state because I, you know, I, I don't know if we'll be here as a species. Yeah. I mean, I've had friends say that and still give me a donation to Earth Law yeah. Center. Like, look, I'm not really worried about the planet. I'm not also so sure about humanity's future on the planet, but here's a hundred dollars. Yeah. But I, I do think that, you know, we have, these are problems that we created. And so I do also feel like we have it within us to solve them. And if you look around, there are a lot of solutions, right? Earth Law is in some way a legal formulation of indigenous nation worldviews. Mm-hmm. So if we are able to continue to draw back on things that worked and make them, you know, relevant to now and how to make them practical for now, maybe that's a way we can kind of build and continue to grow. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. 
Thank you so much. Oh, for thank you so much for this today. chance. And thank you for all the great questions. It it's was really so nice fun. to talk to you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment or review and share with your friends. I'm always reading our comments and love hearing from you. So keep in touch and I'll see you next time.